today we're taking a break from the One Another series. If you've been here over the last several months, you know that we've been taking a look at those New Testament passages that include the little phrase, one another. And that's because they're strategic in understanding Christ's command that we love one another. But today we push the pause button there, and I want us to take a look at the majesty of God. The majesty of God has reference to His greatness. It has reference to the wonders He inspires in those who encounter Him in His glory. Such an experience and firsthand knowledge is life-changing. And there are stories recorded for us in the Old and the New Testaments. And so from Job, who encountered the majesty of God and was brought to a place of deep humility and profound worship, to the prophet Isaiah, who came into the throne room of heaven itself and saw God in his holiness, just like we sang, and, and his cry from the depths of his soul, even as a consecrated prophet, was, Woe am I! Woe on me! I'm undone! I'm, I'm ruined in the presence of this great God. All the way through to the disciples like Peter, James, and John, who saw the unveiled majesty of Christ as they stood on a mountaintop with him and watched that human veil fall away and his unveiled divine glory just radiated. They did not even know what to do with themselves. And Peter just kind of fumbled through some words saying, let's build some tabernacles or tents and, and camp out here for a while. And God the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter, close your mouth. You need to be listening right now. So those kinds of encounters with the majesty of God are transformational. Now it's possible that God could make an appearance in this room today, but I don't think that's what will actually happen. But I do believe that through this living and abiding word, as he describes it, through this inspired word of God, he will speak to our souls and I believe he will present himself in an appearance to your heart. So will you open your heart to him and say, oh Lord God, let me see you as you are. Because in this book, in the Old and the New Testaments, he reveals his majesty to us. And even that revelation is intended to be life-changing. Theologian John Murray wrote, the deeper a believer's apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of his love to God the more persistent his yearning for the attainment of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He's just essentially paraphrasing the Apostle Paul right there. The more conscious will be he will be of the gravity of the sin that remains within him, and the more poignant will be his detestation of it. And I think to myself, all of those things need to happen to us. Our love for God needs to grow. Our rejection of sin and turning away from it, that, that needs to grow in its intensity. But, but it's not going to happen if I just stand here as a preacher of the gospel today and say, you know what, you need to love God more. And you need to stop sinning so much. Now those would be true statements, and it's, it's fine to say that, but what God does in his word is to present himself in his majesty as one of the ways that we begin to just kind of come apart at the seams and, and we renounce our pride and our and the sin of our selfishness, and we humble ourselves before Him. And I'd much rather that we all encounter the majesty of God through His Word than just a few words of exhortation 
because I have no authority within myself. I'm just a broken, flawed man like all of you. We tend to think of ourselves as being pretty great, don't we? I mean, if we're really honest, we really kind of live with this underlying sense that our little world, whatever it includes, is kind of central to the universe. That's why we sometimes get upset with people who don't just like fall in line, you know, with the kingdom of Danny, in my case. It's like, what's up with you people? From my wife to my kids, it's like, you've, you've lived in my kingdom long enough. You, you know what the king wants. Now, I've, I'd never say it like that. And neither would you, but we live like that, don't we? And sometimes we even get angry at God as if he hasn't served our purposes. God, where were you? How come you allowed that to happen to me? Or why didn't you answer that prayer? And, you know, where's the million bucks I've been praying for all these years? We tend to think of ourselves as being pretty great. And so our ideas tend to become sovereign and our plans and our dreams and our ambitions often run unchecked because we live our lives as if we are the center of the universe. One of the reasons God reveals himself in his majesty, though, is to correct that kind of damaging thinking. It's destructive of your, uh, your relationships around you, certainly, but it will ultimately lead you to personal ruin if you continue to live life as if you are supreme. And so God, in his great mercy, often steps right into the middle of our lives and says, you are not supreme, I am supreme. Now, I want to talk very briefly uh, through some of the, a number of scriptures. There's, we'll go to one text in just a moment, but there are so many texts that we could look at. But I want you to be familiar with how the term majesty, the concept of majesty, is used uh, in the scriptures here. Uh, first of all, it is used sometimes as an attribute ascribed to God. We sang some songs related to this. We read Psalm 93 at the outset of the service. It describes God as majestic. A second is it's a characteristic of his ministry. And we're going to look at this in the life of Christ in just a few minutes. Micah is an Old Testament prophet who said many years before the Christ was born uh, that he will stand and minister in the majesty uh, of the name of God. And that's a beautiful concept. We'll, un we'll unpack that in just a little bit. Oops, I went too far. And then, thirdly, it's actually a title. Did you know that it is actually good and right to refer to God on high as the majestic glory? That's 2 Peter 1.17. That's how Peter describes him. Or Hebrews 1 verse 3, the majesty on high. So we worship him in his majesty, but we can also worship him as the majesty. So those are some of the ways the terminology is used in the scriptures. Now, there are two big categories that I want you to think of this morning. And the first is this. You can see God's majesty clearly, powerfully, beautifully displayed for you in the created world we live in. So creation reveals God's majesty. Creation reveals God's majesty. His majesty is seen throughout the universe. I want you to just think with me and even gaze upon some images that others have captured, and these are powerful. It is God who establishes the order of heaven and earth, where darkness and formlessness were once the visible landscape. Genesis 1 holds the account of creation, and it tells us that God speaks, and there is light. He speaks, and the light separates from the darkness so that the day and night are established. He speaks again, and the sky is formed and populated with a million, million stars. Galaxies and quasars 
red giants, and white dwarfs, all of which he catalogs. And according to Psalm 147, verse 4, he catalogs them and calls them each by name. We read further in the scriptures and see God creating an abundance of animal life. Bison in massive herds populate the world. Wildebeest, elephants. Stay with me here. Elephants and antelope roam the continental plains. Flocks of snow geese and pink flamingos paint the marshes with their beauty. Magpies and toucans, kingfishers and golden eagles take to the skies, testifying to the majesty on high. Swarms of Japanese beetles and monarch butterflies and bald-faced hornets appear in the affirmation that the Creator is majestic in wisdom. I love these. Troops of cotton-top tamarinds, gibbons monkeys, chimpanzees establish their territories in the forests of the globe, colonies of tree frogs and weaver ants. There we go. <laughs> and honeybees and Formosan termites. Any of you have experience with those? Where's Kevin? Aren't those what swarm in Hawaii? That's where Kevin's from. And I was preaching there one time to a group of junior campers who already have attention spans that are that big. And suddenly a swarm of termites came into the place. It was insane. I should have closed in prayer at that point. But I had the bright idea that we could wage war on the termites. And I said, okay, time out from the sermon. Everybody get up. And for 30 seconds, we're going to stomp and swat and kill as many of these things as possible. And so they did, and they thought it was great, and there was some carnage on the floor, but it didn't make a, a dent in this swarm of, of termites. At that particular moment, I was not thinking that this is a demonstration of the majestic wisdom of God. I felt like the whole week, or at least that night of preaching ministry had been undermined. But you know, when you, when you gaze upon creatures like these, how can you not say to yourself, something is behind this? The sea teems with life from the massive blue whale to the schools of tropical fish whose colors put us in awe. To the veined octopus dwelling in the dark deeps. You and I can't swim to the depths where this creature dwells without very special equipment. But God put those creatures there to testify that he is majestic in power, in wisdom, in glory. So how can the center of the universe remain in your soul. I mean, you have to jump and stumble and trip over all kinds of barriers to decide that you're it. Everywhere, the abundance of life and all its glorious variety testifies to the greatness of the majestic one. And yet these Creatures are not even the pinnacle of its creation. Because back in Genesis 1, he tells us that at the end of his creation, really the culmination of it, he decided to fashion one special race in his own image. 
And as glorious as all of these other creatures are, small and great, they cannot lay claim to being fashioned in his image. And what did he create in his image? People. Like you and me. Some tall, some short, some fair-skinned, and some dark-skinned. Some with almost magical eyes, like this little girl. Others who through the ages have established cultures very different one from another, but all of them image bearers of the majesty on high. I love how Genesis culminates with the creation of the human race. And God first creates Adam. Have you read this lately? He takes him from the dust of the ground. And the Bible even uses terminology that describes God as as a, a great artisan. And even though God is a spirit and doesn't dwell in a body as you and I do, there is a sense where he has his hands on the elements and he fashions a man. And then he puts that man to sleep and takes a rib from that man's side and he fashions a woman. And after waking Adam from that sleep, he brings the woman and the man together. And Adam, if you've not studied this out before, you might not be aware of this, but in Genesis 2, where Adam looks at Eve for the first time and says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he's actually speaking poetry. That'll tell you a couple of things. One, how absolutely brilliant and perfect those first human beings were, but actually how stunning Eve was to behold. I mean, guys, how many of us just spontaneously speak poetry when we see you know, our bride or a girlfriend or something. That's why you stand for hours on end at the, you know, greeting card rack going, oh man, what should I get? Adam didn't need to go to the Hallmark store. But part of the reason is what he saw was absolutely perfect and he saw in that woman the image of God. And his concluding word in that little bit of poetry is, this at last is what I am. Do you doubt the majesty of God? Everywhere we turn our feeble eyes or employ the power of magnification, whether it be telescopes or even microscopes, we see the greatness of this God. You know, when Job was wrestling with his own suffering and trying to make sense of it, and for the longest time, it's just Job and his friends speaking to one another, trying to compare and and use their own theological understanding, make sense of all that Job is suffering. And finally, God speaks. And in those several chapters at the end of Job, he doesn't actually explain to Job why he has allowed the suffering. He just keeps saying to him, I am God and you are not. And he walks him through the creation that Job was very familiar with in some ways similar to what we've just done with the aid of a few uh, brilliant slides uh, of of brilliant colors and, and photographs put together in those slides. And Job comes to a conclusion at one point in that interaction. And he says, by his wind, that is by the breath of God, the heavens were made fair. And behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. 
How small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? And I think to myself, so all that beautiful glory we just witnessed, whether it be quasars or, or giant red stars or, or whatever it might be, even down to the Japanese beetle or termites, all of those things speak of the majesty of God, and yet those are considered the outskirts. So I ask the question, what lies at the epicenter? I mean, if that's just like the fringe, what's in the middle? You know, the Bible actually gives us some answers. We stand there with, and I love this image, because the outstretched arms, in a sense, are like, oh, my soul. I mean, it's just, how do we grasp this? We actually go to Christ. Creation is glorious, but Christ is the very particular and special revelation of the majesty of God. And so that's where I would ask you to open your Bibles to Hebrews 1 with me, please. Hebrews 1. Now we're going we're gonna to consider three different aspects of Christ's revelation of the majesty of God. And the first is in his person. And if you're going to Hebrews 1... Um, We'll, we'll start there. That's page 1001. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you on the, the seat racks. And then second of all, in his earthly ministry, and I made reference to Micah's prophecy, and I, we're just going to take one little story from Luke's gospel, and then finally, in his work of redemption, we're going to spend the last little bit of time coming back into Hebrews and looking at some things. So, so let's go first of all to the majesty of, of God revealed in his person, in Jesus Christ. Uh, second, oh, I, I forgot I had this. You're in Hebrews, so just stay there. But 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. I, I wanted to tie this back because we were here a couple of weeks ago um, looking at 2 Corinthians 4 for the sake of you old timers. Um, remember how we were looking at this particular passage. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I, I love that passage because it ties in the creation account we just walked through very briefly and the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, his redemption. And in both cases, God is speaking. God is creating light, shining the light of truth. And in particular, the second half of that verse, it's a work that God does so that people like us can actually come back into relationship with him. So I just wanted you to tie that. Now, the question is, how does God the Father want to reveal, or what does he want to reveal in the face of his son, Jesus Christ? And that's where we go to Hebrews 1. That's page 1001. So let me read through just the first three verses here. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is his son, Jesus the Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now let's just take a few of those phrases one by one here as we go. And first of all, note, he is the radiance of the glory of God. You need to recognize that what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate is that Jesus, Jesus is a one-of-a-kind, a unique, shining forth of God's glory. You can see something of God's glory in a quasar 
or some of those other creatures, but you, you don't really begin to understand the nature of God until Jesus comes in flesh into the world and he begins to live and serve and minister and do all of life as one of us. And the verb in this text actually indicates that there's never been a time when Jesus Christ has not been the radiance of God. So you should not think of him oh, as in some pre-existence, he was in one form and then suddenly, boom, he becomes the radiance of the glory of God. No, he's always been that. He's always been this perfect outshining and revelation. The exact imprint of his nature is what the author goes on to say. You think of an imprint, it's usually something stamped. Maybe a character, a letter, a mark, or sign. It, there's an imprint that is left. And what God is saying is that Jesus is the exact imprint. I mean, he's not 99% accurate. He's 100%. So to see Jesus Christ in his life, as recorded in the Gospels, is to encounter God, the majestic one. I know we're, I, even as I say that, I think to myself, here we are just teetering on the brink of that whole Trinitarian truth. How can it be one God, three persons? And I was, I've talked with several people lately about it, and I just say, I, I can't fully explain it. And it's okay to not be able to fully explain it, because remember, we're finite creatures. We are boxed in, both by these bodies and the capacity of our brains. We're finite creatures. God is the infinite, eternal one. So if, if finite creatures actually get a full grasp on the infinite one, uh, that's actually a bad thing because that means he isn't really infinite. So some things we're just going to leave to him and affirm the truth. So this is one of those things. Jesus is the exact image of God's nature. So Jesus Christ reveals the majesty of God in his person. Now, second of all, he reveals the majesty of God in his earthly ministry. And Hebrews 1 has said... Um, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, we're going to go to his earthly ministry, but I want you to think, even before we go to Luke's gospel here in just a moment, about the ongoing ministry of Jesus who created all things. And this verse tells us that he upholds the universe by his powerful word. He's the reason there's gravity. I mean, I, I know some of you are, are big time into science and say, well, actually, gravity you know, has to do with the, the weight and density of objects and the orbit and this and that. Yeah, I get it, but he, he actually designed and created all of that. You didn't wake up this morning saying, I wonder if I'm going to be able to keep my feet on planet Earth today. Is this the day we, we all like start flying away? The laws of gravity just suddenly vanish? No. Nope. You know why? Because he upholds it all. Didn't get the second line underline there. By his powerful word. Just meditate on that majesty for a moment. How does he do it? None of us woke up this morning saying, oh, I wonder if the sun's going to rise. It'd be catastrophic if it, if it didn't. Hope the moon doesn't collide with the earth this week. Not just all there because of his powerful word. So that's a component of his ongoing ministry that we often overlook, don't we? And it's sad to me, and I, I'm just as guilty as the, the next person, because day by day, rather than meditating on those aspects of his majesty that actually do create security and confidence, we're looking at all the stuff that scares us, aren't we? 
oh, my job situation, oh, the financial bill that came in that's unexpected, oh, the doctor's diagnosis, man, we just never saw that coming, or, oh, man, the kids have cavities. My dental insurance, I pay that much per month, but, I mean, what good does it do? I mean, we're, we're looking at all this stuff that makes us feel vulnerable, and yet, at the same time, there, there's Jesus behind it all, upholding the universe with his powerful word. He is revealing the majesty of God in his ministry. But, but the particular thing I want you to note would be from Micah 5, verse 4. All right, so here's the Old Testament prophecy. Many hundreds of years before Jesus was born, so we're looking at, I think it would be probably right around 25, 2600 years since Micah gave this prophecy. But just look at these words. He, that is, this is the prophecy of Messiah, Jesus who would come, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now, turn over to Luke's gospel with me. All right? Maybe you're still in the New Testament. Page 867. Again, if you're using one of our, uh, one of our Bibles provided here. And in verse 37, we begin to read an account of, of, of an individual who is in deep distress. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, a demonic spirit, as we'll see in just a moment. And he suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And now look at this. Here's the, here's the verse that really ought to capture our attention, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. See, this is one of those occasions where you realize Jesus is in a category all by himself. There are other prophets who came before him who healed and did miraculous things, but Jesus is doing something that even has, has never been seen before. And what are they astonished at? Just his power to exorcise a demon from this little boy? No, they're in awe of the majesty of God that's on display. His authority over the demonic forces of the world. And they are astonished. Uh, you could even, if you went back to the original language that this is written in and just studied a little bit of, of the dictionaries and, and examples that, that are given, it, it conveys the sense of, of, of just being knocked out of your senses. I mean, you're struck with astonishment, with terror even. And some admiration. It's a good thing, but you're still like, man, I'm so glad I was here. That was awesome to behold, but man, it scares me. It's the majesty of his power. And I said a moment ago, and I want to come back to this thought. When you read the Gospels and you see and hear Jesus Christ serving and speaking, healing and restoring, confronting and evangelizing, dying and rising, this is all a part of what Micah means when he says he will stand and shepherd his flock in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. That is Jesus, who is the exact imprint and nature of God, comes in human flesh, ministers and serves in a way so that everyone will know this is what God is like. This is how he cares for the broken ones. This is how he heals those whose lives have been 
just shattered by their sin or shattered by some physical illness or destroyed by some economic hardship. This is your God. What a comfort to think that at this very moment, Jesus Christ is bringing all the divine power of the majesty on high, all the perfections of God to bear upon our lives. It's easy to read that story and say, well, that was another time and another place and those were other people. God doesn't work that way anymore. Really? Has He changed? Some of you say, well, my life is so hard. Yes, exactly. And that's why He comes even today and reveals Himself to you as the majestic servant and shepherd. We could use those terms in this passage because He wants you to know that your life is hard. You can trust, entrust your life to Him. I was thinking of another passage that the Apostle Paul wrote that describes for us that God's design, even for our present suffering, is to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory. You say, but I don't understand where I am at this moment in life and how I ended up here and why it's so challenging. Perhaps, I mean, we all understand that, but the shepherd knows the beginning from the end and you can trust him to write the story of your life. As he wills. You say, I'm so weary in this journey and I'm afraid that I'm going to fail and lose it all. Exactly. That's why this same God says in another place, I will never leave you or forsake you. Others may leave you. Family, friends, companies, business partners. All of those people sometimes walk away from us, but not this majestic God. Well, that brings us to the final and in some respects the most important piece of the majesty of God. And Jesus Christ reveals the majesty of God in His work of redemption. Now those terms begin to get very specific. We're going to go back to Hebrews 1 and I want you to turn there with me because this is the the key text for the remaining minutes that we have here in our study. We already considered that he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But now look at these next phrases. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand is a special place of honor for any king in ancient Eastern literature. And even to this day, I mean, it is often the position of honor but particularly in the time that the Bible was written. And in this case, Hebrews 1, verse 3, it is the exclusive place of honor that God Almighty, the majesty on high, gives to His Son. Nobody else gets this place or position of honor. Now the question is, on what basis does Jesus take this seat or this position of honor? Well, it's the phrase right before that last phrase. After making purification for sins. What does that mean? When did Jesus make purification for sins? Well, he did it by shedding his blood on the cross. You know, later in Hebrews, if you kept reading, you'd have to read to the ninth chapter to get to this point. The Bible tells us that he entered once for all into the holy places. And it's actually talking about heavenly places. I mean, there are mysteries here. I wish I could just preach a whole message on this. That'll have to be for some other time. But look at the next phrase. Not by means of the blood and goats and calves. That is, he's not like those Old Testament Jewish priests who would offer those animals and bring those into the tabernacle or into the temple and the blood would be, would be poured out on the altar there. No, no. 
He is actually setting before us this picture of Jesus entering those heavenly holy places and not coming by the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Where did Jesus shed his blood? On the cross. And what happened there? Thus he secured eternal redemption. Eternal buyback. That is, there's not going to be another transaction that's needed after Jesus redeems sinners like us by his blood. You read on to verse 14 and see how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Does your conscience nag at you like mine does? Man, I don't want to hit the replay button on certain days or even weeks or months of my life, certain events. I mean, those, I mean they're ugly. Those are moments of just out-and-out rebellion against God. Ultimately, sometimes it was rebellion against parents or other earthly authorities. Sometimes it's in my marriage. I mean, there's ugly stuff there. And so our consciences sometimes dog us and we just think, ah, oh, if I could just put enough distance there, somehow just scrub the memory banks. I'm so humiliated and embarrassed and it just kills me to think about that. And God knows that. And gloriously, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he can wash your conscience and make it pure and clean and whole and healthy again. Not just so you can kind of go on with your life and say, oh, good, glad that's behind you. But look at that last phrase. In order that you and I might serve the living God. What a privilege. How much more will the blood of Christ, who offered himself, verse 24, Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Really? Do you believe that Jesus did that for you? That he actually had you personally in mind when he died on the cross and then spiritually entered the holy places of heaven and presented himself as the once-for-all sacrifice, offered his blood as the payment the holy and just God required for the sins of the world. He did it for you. Verse 26, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is some of what we mean when we say the work of redemption. The majestic God of heaven so values and treasures this redemptive work that he seats his son in this exclusive place of honor in order that he might be praised and worshipped forever and that we may know that our sins are forgiven and eternal life is ours forever. Does that make you want to sing again? It does me. I have conflicted emotions in response to that. Part of me wants to sing. Part of me wants to just get down on my face before God and say, I'm not worthy of this. And he would agree. We're not worthy. But that's why he's a God of grace. Because it's not about being worthy. It's about being humble and honest, repenting and believing. This is majesty of a whole other kind. The outskirts of God's majesty seen in his created world and through the created universe are worthy in and of themselves of our praise. But nothing in all the universe compares to the majesty of God as it is revealed in Jesus Christ. His person, his ministry, and his work of redemption. His majesty radiates through the earthly ministry of Christ's life and it radiates through the work of redemption on Christ's cross.
He is great and greatly to be praised. So what do we do with this truth? What does God want you to do? That's the real question. Well, first of all, I would say simply he is kind and that he extends, oops, he extends an invitation and says, call on me. Do you know Romans 10, 13? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What would you call on him for? Call on him for the cleansing of your conscience. Call on him for the forgiveness of your sins. Call on him for the gift of eternal life. Just call. And his promise is, everyone who calls on my name, my majestic name, will be saved. See, I'm not sure he has the power to forgive my sins. Really? Should we look at those slides again about the universe? He spoke that into existence. You think he's got power to forgive you? Does he need another sacrifice? No, Jesus made the once for all sacrifice. It's all in place. Your part is to call on the name of the Lord. There's a second component, and that is meditate on the majesty of God. Psalm 145, verse 5 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Why would we do that? Because it puts the right perspective on all the other issues of life. You meditate on the majesty of God. I mean, and you know, just Google, you know, Google the uh, cotton top tamarinds again and just, just ponder how they reveal God's majesty to you. And I'm just telling you, it'll put perspective even on some of the challenges that you face day in and day out, just like I do. Suddenly paying those dental bills isn't as big a deal because you're like, my God created those creatures. He can provide for my kids' teeth. When you meditate on the work of redemption in particular and meditate through Hebrews 9 and, and really hear the Lord saying to you that the blood of Jesus Christ does cleanse a conscience from dead works to serve him, some of you would actually begin to experience relief that you've never felt. I mean, you live with constant guilt because of something you did or said in the past or maybe even the accumulation of evil things. But God means it when he says this once-for-all sacrifice, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I, I, I intend it to cleanse your conscience from those dead works. Now serve me. You say, but I'm not worthy. We're back there again. You're right, but it's of his grace, so just receive it. Let him deal with all that past. So that's the second thing. You need to meditate on it. The third thing is, and I use the word message as a verb. It's kind of, it's another M word, so it may help you remember this. Message the majesty of God. Look at Psalm 145. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. So speak about it. Talk. You're going to encourage somebody. It may be a family member who needs to be reminded of these things this week, and they're a little bit discouraged or they're frustrated in something. You're like, hey, remember? We serve a majestic God. Oh, yeah, that's right. Let's just pray to him and tell him our need. Let's just meditate on his truth. But you need to speak it privately, and you also need to speak it publicly when you can. It's one of the reasons we've been in the park. It's one of the reasons that we will continue to look for opportunities, just get out in the community, because we want to just tell people, Oh, do you know the majestic God? Do you know Jesus? Do you know what he's done by shedding his blood on the cross? Do you know that you can be forgiven your sins, have your conscience cleansed from dead works to serve the living God? We message it. We message it. 
So we believe it, and that translates into calling on him. We meditate on it, which puts our life in perspective, and we message the majesty of God because there are others around us who are just as desperate as we are, but they don't know about Jesus yet. As we conclude this morning, I want to ask you to just bow your heads with me, and we're going to continue to meditate on this truth for a moment and then pray together. I'm going to give you the opportunity just to pray silently where you are. What is God asking you to do with His truth right now? What's the first and clearest impression in your soul at this moment? Is it the Spirit of God saying to you, you know what, you need to call on me for salvation. You need to believe, Romans 10, 13, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If, if, that's, if that's the urging that you feel in your heart right now, just do it silently. You don't have to say it out loud in front of all of us, but just from your heart, call out to God by faith and say, God, I'm calling on your name. Will you save me? Will you give me eternal life? Will you forgive me for my sins? You know, if you, if you are praying that right now, and I'm asking people to keep their heads bowed and their eyes closed, so this is just between us right now, but if you would acknowledge that and just maybe hold your hand up just high enough and long enough for me to see it, say, I'm praying that prayer. And Danny, I would love to talk with you after the service. I would love to be available in that way. Is there anyone? Say, yes, pray for me. I'm praying right now, but I'm, I'm going to need to talk a little more and I'd like to have a little more information. Some of you have been walking with God, but you've let other circumstances and difficulties obscure the majesty of God. And this morning has been kind of a reset. Then you just need to praise God and say, thank you, God, that you are the majestic one. Thank you that you rule and reign over all. I just I submit my heart, my life to you again. I, I bring all of these cares and anxieties to you and I cast them on you. Only you, God, are powerful enough to rescue us. To guide us out of this difficult and hard place. But God, I'm just praising you that you are the majestic one. Oh, that's a sweet prayer. And God delights to hear that. Some of you new friends who've come from different parts of this country to serve us. You've blessed us, but... Will you just determine to continue messaging the majesty of God as you go home? Because Roswell, Georgia needs it. And Detroit, Allen Park, Michigan needs it. Idaho Falls needs it. West Bend needs it. Lancaster needs it. Wherever we're about to scatter. But as we go, let's message the majesty of God. Now, Father, take your truth, seal it to your hearts. Whatever opinions we have formed that stand outside of truth, whatever I may have communicated that is inaccurate of you and your glory or even obscuring of the truth you desire, just let all that stuff fall away as, as useless chaff. Let your truth which will remain forever, take root in our hearts. Give us grace to know you as you are. Thank you. 
that you are majestic in glory and greatly to be praised. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.